Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 12. Judges 12, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Let's go to God in prayer before we read the word. God of light, we pray now that by the light of your revelation and the Holy Spirit's assistance, we would see the Scripture for what it truly is, that we might know you, that we might know our sinful hearts better, that we might trust in Christ, cling to him more and more when it is all said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Word origins are exciting. They really are. You don't have to love words to know and love word origin stories. There is an abundance of phrases that seem quite odd to us in the English language. Why, for instance, did the speaking world ever use the phrase, there is more than one way to skin a cat? Why are people skinning cats? And with so much regularity that there has to be a phrase to summarize that, which what seems to be an abominable action, especially for us who love cats. The Bible is the origin of many phrases that we hear, that we love, some very affectionate phrases. One of them is that we, the people of God, are the apple of God's eye, found in Deuteronomy. And we come to a word this morning that we hear in common speech today, at least some of us hear this word. It's the word shibboleth. Some of us hear the word. If you consulted a dictionary, you would read that it refers to a word or a phrase that distinguishes one group from another, just as accents let you know the region someone is from. You know that you are in the South when you hear someone pronouncing the word oil as ol. Or raw as row. 
There's nothing inherently wrong with the way people pronounce certain words. They're entitled to being wrong, of course. But joking aside, regional words, regional sounds usually do not make a lot of difference, so long as we know what word the person is using. But in our text, this word shibboleth definitely does make a big difference. It means life or death. Its pronunciation in this text means life or death. The Lord will use this as a means of purifying his church and eradicating her rebels. The main point this morning is that a true judge removes all proud pretenders as he restores permanent peace to the church. Look with me again at verse 1. It says, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. This is the last of Jephthah's ministry. Jephthah's final conflict, sadly, is not with pagans, but with proud men from Israel. Notice that the conflict here is not with the Ammonites, for they have been defeated, but with Ephraimites. We have Ephraimites. We have inflamed Ephraimites. We have inflamed Ephraimites again. If you're wondering if verse 1 is a rerun, if you've already watched this episode, if you've already read this story, then you are on the right track, because this is what happened to some degree, anyways, back in Judges chapter 8, verse 1, against Gideon. And this happened about 100 years earlier. This same tribe, Ephraim, had the same issue just a century before with another judge, with Gideon. And you recall from Judges 8.1 that the Ephraimites said to Gideon, why didn't you call us to fight against the Midianites? Remember, they wanted the glory of joining with Gideon to take down the Midianites. And you remember that they accused Gideon fiercely, but Gideon humbly lowered himself before these Ephraimites and was able to pacify this group of war-hungry individuals. And so now they come against Jephthah, again, about a century later, And they say, why did you cross over to fight the Ammonites and you did not call upon us? Don't you know how much we want to take down the enemy? Why didn't you call us? But instead of accusing Jephthah fiercely, they up the ante, if you will, they they threatened to burn down his house. Just take a moment here to reflect that it is grievous when the people of God turn on each other. Because that is what is going on here. We have two tribes coming against each other. And it is often pride that will drive the, the church in the Old Testament and in the New Testament apart. And so we have pride in full display in these verses. And you see the proud heart at work in verse 1. The pride here is demanding. It demands inclusion. And one of the problems in most local churches is just not having enough involvement. You know, it can be like pulling teeth, getting people to come to a Sunday school lesson or ABF lesson, evening worship, 
a Bible study, a hymn sing, a church work day, or any other worthy cause. But that's not the problem here. The problem is that heart that must be involved in the affairs of the church, as many as can be. And here I don't have in mind the, the session's oversight of all the ministries of the church. We would be derelict in our duty if we did not oversee all the affairs of the church. We have to give an account before God. But even in this oversight, we don't micromanage and say, for instance, to the North Korea coordinator, you know, did you buy enough Cheerios? Do you have enough wipes? No, we, we put the right people in the right place. Yes, we verify their, their conduct and examine, and, but we entrust them with the duty that we know they can do well. But motive here makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because there's a huge difference between, on the one hand, I didn't know you were in the hospital. Why didn't you call me? I would have come. I would have helped you. I would have been praying for you. I would have brought a meal. And that's one end. And the other end is, why didn't you invite me to the meeting? Well, you're not on the committee. Well, still. Really? The proud one demands inclusion in as many aspects of church life because... The proud demands control. The proud demands domination. Proud here, we see this very clearly with the Ephraimites. They, they must know all the things. They must know the Ammonites. They must know how to take down the Ammonites. They must be called upon to take down the Ammonites. Sure, Jephthah can help, but the Ephraimites have, have proven worthy of taking down the enemy. Pride demands Domination. I must know all the things. I must have my hand in all the things as possible. The Ephraimites here are saying, Jephthah, you did not involve us. And now we will dominate you. Now we will control you. Now we will conquer you. In fact, we will burn your house down over you. If it's an enemy, I must fight him, the Ephraimite would say. If there's a conflict anywhere, I must know it. If there's a complaint against someone, I have to know it so I can pray for it. I must be all-knowing. I must be all-doing. In other words, the proud heart that dominates says, I must be God. I must be God of this home. I must be God of this church. I must be God of this workplace, of this society. I must be the one to do all the things. I'm the one who has to have control of all the things. After all, I know all the things. But weak men make for poor gods. And their pride does nothing but bad for the church. So pride, yes, it demands involvement. It demands domination. And with the proud heart, we ignore the truth. Obsessed with ourselves, we ignore everything that doesn't line up with what we think. Jephthah corrected them. You might be wondering, did Jephthah invite the Ephraimites to take down the Ammonites? Because we don't see earlier in the previous chapter that Jephthah said, hey, Ephraimites, I'm about to begin a war with the Ammonites, a just war. Will you come and help us? You don't see that. And so the question is, did he invite them? Did he call upon them? And Jephthah says, what are you guys talking about? I specifically called you. Phone was ringing. You didn't pick up the phone. You didn't answer. 
You didn't save us from the Ammonites. And he says, it became clear to me that you were not coming. So I stopped relying on you. I stopped calling upon you to come to my aid. Instead, I leaned on the Lord. And the Lord gave the Ammonites into my hand. Like the king of the Ammonites in the previous chapter who refused to listen to Jephthah's history lesson, these Ephraimites refused to hear the judge's words of calling them to arms. And of course, we wonder, well, why did they just refuse the call? Jephthah said he called them, and, and they didn't come. Well, the text doesn't say why they refused. So we shouldn't speculate. But Jephthah said he did. In fact, as we'll see in just a little bit, Psalm 78 says that they were called as well. But what is a man who is smitten, or to use a, maybe a, a more common word, you know, who is um, in love with, or he is taken by a young woman? What does that man do? He thinks about her, and only her, all the time of the day. He wonders when he can have another conversation with her. He wonders when they can have another date. He wonders when they can get married. He wonders about her. He thinks about her all the time. But what does a man smitten by himself think about? Himself. And only himself. This is the proud heart that can think only of himself. We're too busy being offended. We're too busy being hurt what that person supposedly did or, or did not do, that we're not at all interested in knowing the truth or talking with people about the truth. Truth can go out the window as long as I'm justified in being unjustly treated. But that's really the question, isn't it? Were you unjustly treated? Was I unjustly treated? Was she unjustly treated? Well, there's a remedy for that. And Elder Harney offered it in the confession of sin. Or maybe, like the Ephraimites, we are mistaken. Do we have the humility to recognize that we can be mistaken? Well, guess what? There's a remedy for that too. The Bible is very clear on how to handle disputes. But the question for all of us, for, for you, for me, for all who, who love Christ, the question for all of us is, are we humble enough to seek these God-given remedies? And pride demands. And pride says, I have to be in control. Pride ignores the truth. Pride divides. This really is the product of pride, isn't it? This is, this is a sad narrative, these verses. Surely we see the fragmentation of the church here. This conflict, again, is between two tribes of Israel. And it really, it's between two sub-tribes. If you know your tribes, you know that Gilead comes from Manasseh. And Manasseh is one of Joseph's sons. The other son of Joseph was Ephraim. These two sons were sons born to Joseph in Egypt. And so the Ephraimites versus the Gileadites means Ephraim versus Manasseh, two tribal blessed sons of Joseph. The situation would be similar 
to you know, maybe some of our senior men looking down on our younger men for, for something. You know, for instance, seniors would say, well, why didn't you, younger men, invite us to your men's Bible study? And the younger men would say, well, we did invite you to the men's Bible study. It's been in the bulletin. We'd love, you to come. We'd love for you to come. Will you, will you come? Oh, no, you didn't invite me. Okay, well, you can have your study, but we invited you. And despising the young for the youth, the older men demand inclusion, demand control. And when they don't get it, they want nothing to do with these younger ones. And what's the result? In that group of men, there is a fracture. There is a fragmentation. There is a, a mini division. You have the older against the younger. And we say, well, yeah, that's a silly example, Pastor Mock. No one's going to divide over that. Well, you're probably right. And let's, let's pray that we would, never over, we would never divide over something so small. But people divide over the smallest things, don't they? But not because they are small, but because for them, they're big things. The molehills have become mountains in their minds. And why? Why do molehills become mountains in our minds? It's because we, the offended, are the big things. Again, we, we, we need humility because pride is that, that tendency in our hearts to exalt self, to deify ourselves, is ever-present. I mentioned this in an early sermon. This isn't, this isn't Burger King. This church is not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. I don't get to have it my way. You don't get to have it your way. None of us should want it his own way. That's the whole point of Judges. There was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Bad thing. Bad sign if we are seeking something that's right in our own eyes. When we get to the story of Samson, very soon he will see someone who is right in her own eyes, which is bad in God's eyes, which will then bring consequences for the man and for a whole host of people. There is only one head of the church, and it is not Pastor Mock, and it is not the session of this church. And it is not the diaconate of this church. And it is not the congregation of this church. It is not the PCA. It is not our, our Central Carolina Presbytery. It is not all of the churches combined from Reformed and non-Reformed denominations. Not one of us is the head of this church. There's one head. It's Jesus Christ. It is him we serve. We must always examine our actions, our motives, our thoughts, our words, in line with how our head has directed us through his word, by the power of the Spirit. Matthew Henry says, No contentions are so bitter as those between brethren or rivals for honor. And therefore, we must always, dear ones, guard our hearts about what we believe is to be a major issue. And maybe it is a major issue. Again, the Bible has given us remedies for handling major and non-major issues. But the problem we see here is that if pride is not dealt with, it doesn't matter who the judge is. It doesn't matter 
who the pastor is. It doesn't matter who the elder is. It doesn't matter who the deacon is. It doesn't matter who the church member is. None of that matters because pride dominates the heart. Dear ones, we can ignore the person who offended us, but we cannot ignore our own pride. Gideon's humble response to them a hundred years before was a godly response, but the people never learned their lesson. They passed their pride on to their progeny. With proud hearts, they taught their children their tribe superiority. And with this, they passed the buck of their problem of pride to the next judge, who didn't ignore it. How then is pride dealt with? How is it to be stopped? We see here that it is punished. And the fact that it is punished, and the fact that there are 42,000 Ephraimites who fall by the sword tells us that this was a serious offense. That pride is never a plaything. It is never something that we should just dabble with. It is never something we should give credence to. And not only do these people threaten Jephthah, they hurl slurs at the man. Racial slurs. Verse 4, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. These Ephraimites started the attack. Remember, they, they threatened to burn down the house upon Jephthah. They, they're coming at him. And of course, because they are a proud tribe, they, the first ones, will be first. And essentially they're saying, Gilead, you're a bunch of fugitives from justice. You're a bunch of criminals. You have no inkling of the righteousness of God. You care nothing about justice. And we then are justified in attacking you. We're the just ones. Criminals ought to be punished, right? We're just here executing justice on you, Jephthah. Why is Ephraim so full of pride, so full of superiority? Remember Jacob in Genesis 48. Remember how he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. Again, these two sons of Joseph, they were to be blessed by Jacob. And Manasseh was the older of the two. But Ephraim receives the bigger blessing. You might remember that. Joseph says, no, Dad, you, got, you can't see well. You, you got the hand on the wrong guy. And Jacob says, no, I know who my blessing. I know who is receiving the, the bigger blessing. They're both blessed. But in verse 19 of chapter 48, it says, The younger brother shall be greater than the older brother. Surely this is a pleasure for all these younger brothers who have older brothers. Oh, I'm going to be more blessed. I'm, I'm better than the older brother. God loves me more because I'm the younger one. You know, I'm the, I'm the last one. I'm, I'm the baby, and so I'm, I get more attention. I'm the better one. And these Ephraimites say to the Gileadites, You are the lowest of the low of Manasseh. Manasseh is low, sure, older, but the lowest. And you, Gilead, are lower than that. You are the lowest of the low of the low. You are, ex- you are exiles. You are outcasts. We are better than you. We are Ephraim. Hear us roar. We are the greatly favored one. Don't you know that? Don't you, don't you read the book of Genesis? 
This is their pride, isn't it? They were snubbed. They did not. They were not included. They wanted to be included, and they weren't. And they're taking their anger out on Jephthah. And they are accusing the Gileadites of being less than. Wherever we see this attitude in the church, we must put it to death. Whatever we do, whenever we do, we must pray for this pride to be removed. And the thing is, dear ones, we cannot remove this pride ourselves. You cannot muster up enough of your own strength. You cannot muster up enough of your own flesh to kill flesh. Flesh loves flesh. Flesh hates the spirit. If you're going to crush this pride, if there's going to be any hope, you cannot do any of it on your own. You must lean upon Jesus Christ alone, who works powerfully through his spirit. And Jephthah wins in this battle with the Ephraimites, showing again how the Spirit was leading him, how the Spirit was causing him to succeed. Gilead wins, and he, captured, and he captures the fords of the Jordan, where the Ephraimites would have to cross over if they wanted to return home. And here we see a bit of poetic justice, because this tactic of taking control of the fords of the Jordan was the same tactic that the Ephraimites used against Midian in Judges 7, and again, earlier in Judges 3, in the days of Eglon. They loved this tactic. And now, they're on the receiving end, tasting the bitterness of their own military medicine. And some Ephraimite stragglers, they want to return home. Of course, they don't want to be in enemy lines. They want to go home. And Jephthah's men have occupied these Jordanian fords. It is now their land for now. And to protect themselves and to reduce the number of rebels, a simple test was given, and that's where we have this word shibboleth come in. If you were an Ephraimite and you wanted to return home, you had to pass these fords. But the Gileadites wanted to make sure whether you were an Ephraimite or not. Remember, these are proud pretenders, so they're they're a real threat to Gilead, and threats need to be neutralized. And so the Gileadites come up with a code word of sorts, the word shibboleth. The word just means stream of waters or ear of corn, this seem pretty opposite meanings to me, but that really isn't the purpose for using this word in this context. The word is used for some other purpose. Anyone who wanted to pass over, and when he denied that he was an Ephraimite, when he was asked, said no. He had to say the word shibboleth. And if you were east of the Jordan, you said it with the sh. You said shibboleth. But if you were west of the Jordan, like Ephraim was, you said Sibboleth. It sounds like a minor difference, and it is. But if you were Ephraim, you couldn't pronounce it any other way, no matter how hard you tried. Similar to, you know, as the Spanish people call us white guys, gringos. Just a, really just a white person who doesn't know how to speak the language. And, you know, there's a single R and there's a double R. And sometimes a native... A native English speaker just can't trill those R's. No matter how many times he goes through Duolingo, how many classes in Spanish he takes, he's doomed just to pronounce the word perro as perro. And those are two different words in Spanish. They mean different things. Here we have something similar. The Ephraimites, unable 
to say shibboleth. Anytime it comes out, shibboleth. And that was the tell. That indicated that that person was an Ephraimite. And if he was, if he was an Ephraimite, then he was taken down. He was killed. And the Lord uses this small word again to reduce the numbers of the rebels by 42,000 overall. Which is, again, a sad thing. But the application point here is that all imposters will be found out. And again, in Psalm 78, which I mentioned just a little bit ago, verses 9 through 11, it refers to this account. It says, The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and wonders that he had shown them. So here the Lord is saying that these Ephraimites were wrong in coming up against Jephthah and wrong in refusing to pick up the phone. And they were wrong because they forgot They forgot God. They were too caught up in themselves. They forgot his works and his wonders. They forgot the law of God. They forgot the the wonderful things that God has done because they were too consumed with the wonderful things that they themselves had done. Just look at all these battles we've won. Look how we were involved in this war and in that. Look at our military successes. Look at us. Again, that's the proud heart. And the Bible does not speak favorably of the Ephraimites in this chapter. We see that in Psalm 78. So not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of the Lord, but only those who by the Spirit confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We cannot fool Jesus. He knows who his sheep are. He knows who the goats are. We will all be found either to be in Christ or never to have known the Christ. And another application point here is that doctrinal nuance may mean life or death. Again, the word shibboleth has become a way of highlighting doctrinal or theological differences over seemingly small matters. Let me take you back to the 300s AD. We have the famous Nicene Creed, 325. But the question during this time that these ministers came from the known world to discuss. The question was this, who is the Son? Who is Jesus Christ? Is the Son homoousios, that's your Greek word for you, or homoousios? If he is homoousios, that means he is of the same substance with the Father. That means you believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God and is God, is one person of the Trinity. But if you say that he is homoousios, what you're saying is he is of a similar substance with the Father. He's almost like the Father. He's better than the angels, but not quite as good as the Father. It's a huge debate. In fact, a lot of people were on the homoi side for a while. That's why we had Athanasius, and that famous phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, and Athanasius against the world. Because he was committed to the deity of Jesus Christ. And he got exiled, I think it was like five times. Because he was committed. No, Jesus is God. But it's one letter difference in the Greek language. A lot was writing on Hama or Hamoi. 
And something similar in the 1500s happened with John Calvin and his interaction with Michael Servetus. I've mentioned this many times in sermons, teaching. And Michael Servetus hated the idea of a trinity. He was very much anti-Trinitarian. He said that the trinity was like Kerberos, for your classical Latin pronunciation, like a three-headed dog, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, 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 there's one God, one person. That's what Servetus would say. And Calvin and others would plead with him, would show him, this is what the truth is, this is what Scripture says, here are, here are, here are how all of your arguments against the deity of Christ fail. Repent. Believe that Jesus is God for your salvation. And his final words, Michael Servetus' his final words were, O oh, Jesus, Son of the eternal God, have pity on me. And that might not sound dangerous, but notice word order. Notice that they were not eternal Son of God, but O oh, Jesus, Son of the eternal God. He even, in his final words, distances himself from the deity of Christ. He dies not confessing Jesus as God. And what does that mean? Well, if you were in the Christian, if you were in a, a place that was ruled by um, Christian magistrates and shown your error over and over again and impenitent, that meant death. Or think about the alones of the Reformation, the five solas that we praise God for every single year. The issue between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church was never if grace factored in. It was never if Scripture factored in, never if faith factored, never if Christ factored or that glory to God factored in. It was all hinging on the alones. Is it the Scripture alone that, we, that is our rule of faith and practice, or is it Scripture and the teaching of the Pope? Is it Christ alone whose work will satisfy? Or is it Christ plus your work? Is it grace alone or grace plus works? Is it faith alone or faith plus works? Is it glory to God alone or glory plus my glory? Because I contribute something. The alone makes all the difference in the world. One word, sola, on which all hangs. On which, as Martin Luther said, this is the justification by faith alone is the hanging or, or falling creed on which the church hangs or falls. Our life and our godliness ride on Jesus Christ who is Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so Jephthah brings peace, verse 6, the end of his ministry says he brings peace and unity to Israel. He was a man called to be head of the inhabitants of Gilead, but God has put him, says, over Israel. That's much more inclusive, isn't it? And to oppose a God-ordained man here unjustly was to oppose God's means of government. Back then, these fighting words would lead to the unjust accuser's death. You just read Deuteronomy 17, 12. And the Ephraimites threatened to do to Jephthah what Abimelech had done to the Shechemites. Again, the text says that 42,000 Ephraimites fell by the Gileadite sword. Once again, Jephthah points us to the all-conquering, ever-just, and peace-making Christ. He doesn't do so perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. But Jephthah's work of eradicating rebels to restore Israel to peace was godly but partial. Pointing to 
the perfect work of Christ. It wasn't Jephthah's work plus Jesus' work. It's only Jesus' work. But Jephthah shows us a little bit here of what the judge will do. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says that Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And what does Christ do? He conquers the grave. He breaks the back of Satan, our former father. And he nails our sin to his cross, which should have been our cross. And he is even now subduing all of his and our enemies under his feet. The Son of Man, the head of the church, is purifying his church because he loves her. And is purifying his church with the ministry of his pure blood and his righteous resurrection. Our faith-filled hope, dear ones, is that all justice, all peace will be carried out. How did Christ deal with the proud? Well, he let himself be nailed to the cross. He gave up his life, didn't he? He surveyed that woeful cross. That cross upon all, that would, that would all the divine woes would fall upon him and him alone. He surveyed that woeful cross. He says, that's where I'm going to go. I will take those curses. I will take what all mankind deserve. Every one of us deserves to be included in the destruction of these 42,000 Ephraimites. We are not better than the Ephraimites. We would be in the same boat as they were it not for the immeasurable grace of God as he contemplated that cross as he willingly allowed himself to be placed on that cross, nailed to that cross to take upon himself all the eternal woes that would fall upon our heads. And how do we deal with pride? We survey that wondrous cross. We think about that cross. We contemplate about that beautiful cross. And when we do, we pour contempt on all of our pride. We do this by availing ourselves of the Spirit who has been poured out graciously upon us. There's nothing for you to do but behold that cross. And even that beholding is a blessed gift from Christ. Let us all cling to the Christ who humbled himself as a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the Christ who perfectly studies the peace and purity of his church. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We know, O God, that every one of us is not as humble as he or she thinks he is wants to be, we all need to be more and more humble. We all need to fight against our own pride. And we thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ himself. We thank you that his work is sufficient to do away with our pride, to do away with our um, violence against your holiness. We thank you for the gift 
of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.